0: Well, if you had to take the book of Proverbs outside of the Bible itself and prove that it's actually written by, in other words, that it's, that it's intended by God to be there, and it's inspired by God and everything like that, you couldn't do it. You couldn't do that with Song of Solomon, you could not do that with Ecclesiastes, you could not do that with Esther, you could not do that with a number of the historical books. In other words, you just could not take them individually. The reason it's there is because of the fact that uh, as the Bible was put together, you have these men that are identified as prophets and were recognized by the people of that day because of those things that they said coming to pass, and God working with them and through them in a miraculous type of way so as to confirm them, and then, of course, their writings being carried on down with those prophecies that were fulfilled down through the centuries and then on into Christ. And so, you show the inspiration of the Proverbs, or the reason that God has it here, by several factors. And one is that you can start and go backwards, that when Jesus walked this earth, the Bible used by the Jews of that day was the Greek Septuagint. And it contains 22 books, but it's the same as our 39-book Bible. They just divide it up differently. And Jesus endorsed this. The Jews of that day accepted it as inspired of God. And it's quoted by the New Testament writers. And so Proverbs is in that Greek Septuagint. Okay? So the very fact that it is among those books that are endorsed by Jesus and the Apostles is your first step. Then as you go back... Through the years, we find that, that Proverbs was written somewhere around 900 to 900, 1,000 B.C. And all of the prophets from that point on, down to Malachi, acknowledged this book as part of the writings. In other words, it was part of the sacred writings. And so Malachi and the others, uh, Ezra and people of that nature that were used to God, all acknowledged this book as being part of the sacred canon itself. So, the first step there is acknowledgement by Jesus, the acknowledgement uh, that it was in the Greek Septuagint. That when the Greek Septuagint was put together itself, there were the 70 top Hebrew scholars that formed that canon, and then moving on back down from Malachi to Proverbs backwards, those prophets that were inspired all acknowledged Proverbs is being part of the canon itself. If it's not that, honey, tell them we've yeah. got, got to study. That it was part of the canon itself. Now, we, we get into the book, and you can see right away how the writer identifies himself in verse 1. Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Okay, this comes down to us. Uh, authenticated by all the history that we have. In other words, the Jew, from the time of this book all the way down, the Jews have acknowledged this as being the work of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Now, when we think of the inspiration of the Bible, sometimes we misrepresent uh, the Bible, or Christians have, down through the centuries. When they leave the impression or teach that, <coughs> that to be inspired, means that every word there is dictated by the Holy Spirit. But there's no questions that there are direct commands there given from God. There's information directly from the Holy Spirit and all. But the Holy Spirit is primarily the spirit of truth. And his job was to make sure that the truth relative to spirituality and man's well-being on this earth and man's destiny and things of that nature was Incorporated into the book itself, and for example, in the Gospels, when you read Matthew, the Holy Spirit didn't even dictate a bit of that Matthew. He witnessed it and heard it. All he needed was a good recollection. Uh, the same is true of John. John didn't need uh, anybody to dictate anything to him or anything of that nature. John's just simply writing what he saw and heard himself. And Luke. Uh, all he would have needed was the spirit of discernment he tells you in his introduction that there's been many other things written that he's been in contact with the other eyewitness the, the eyewitnesses and that he has gathered and put together this work like a historian as he believes the eyewitnesses and all in that period of time mark's gospel is referred to as the gospel according to peter in the first century peter preached it mark recorded it that was it all right in the same way with the old testament You've got things like the law of Moses where God gave the Ten Commandments and God gave the explanation and God gave certain prophecies and and statements about a Messiah and everything like that. Then you have certain parts of the the writings of Moses that are just simply the record of the historical events as they lived and, and Moses recorded those events and then some of it was events that had happened before moses time and had already been recorded by other people and moses just simply incorporated that he wasn't around at creation or anything of that nature and he just simply incorporated those writings that were around and all and put it there as as part of the canon itself joshua would pick up and begin to write of the things transpired and took place uh, as the jews so god worked with the jewish people and then the inspired man was recording those events and all but he was witness of it and god's using him as a witness now in proverbs you do not have a situation here where god has dictated all the words of this book to solomon this is the as the beginning the proverbs of solomon son of david king of israel these proverbs come directly from solomon now what has happened here God has given Solomon tremendous wisdom. Uh, Solomon, when he was young, and he took over as king of Israel, he prayed to God, he was very sincere, and he wanted the wisdom to be an outstanding uh, judge over Israel. In fact, God was very pleased with his prayer, because he hadn't asked for riches or long life or the death of his enemies and all, but he just simply wanted wisdom in order to be a judge over God's people, and so God told him that he had granted that request. And so Solomon is somebody that has been specially endowed by God with what we may say a very super perceptive intellect, and been specially endowed. Now, it really doesn't matter which way it is. Uh, I believe personally that Solomon was already that intelligent. In other words, that God, through his foreknowledge, already knew the man, knew the prayer and everything like that, and I think that, uh, that Solomon was already an intelligent per- an, an, a very, very intelligent person, and God had already had things in motion uh, so far as Solomon was concerned, but it really doesn't matter anyway he's, there's no question about the intelligence of the man that uh, the Proverbs now, like what you're reading became so famous that within not too many years after Solomon, they were carried into other countries and even uh, in the Chinese literature We find statements from Solomon and they acknowledge Solomon and what a great mind he was and a great man and his riches and everything like that. Uh, The Queen of Sheba came to hear Solomon and said the half of it hadn't been told. Well, she got back and and that information found its way into secular sources. And in fact, uh, Adam Clark in his commentary, if you want to go into the historical parts of Solomon where he's talking about his wisdom and everything. uh, Adam Clark has an excellent uh, section there. Where he traces the influence of Solomon's writings and his fame and recognition all throughout the Oriental world, and they were even Confucius uh, was influenced and all by the writings of, uh, of Sol- Solomon. In fact, it's Clark's contention, and I would agree with him, that that anywhere you find extremely moral writing, that there has been the influence. Of the bible and some in some directly or indirectly on the minds of those people that that just doesn't come from man in and of himself it comes from man after he's been influenced for the bible okay so solomon now here's what you need to write the proverbs and this is what you have it's the work it's the work of solomon can i ask you a question about that the queen of sheba remember when she went there to hear the wisdom of solomon right isn't there in secular history or something um or at least through legend, or whatever that he bore, that she bore. Yes, yeah, she bore yeah. a child. Haley mm-hmm. Selassie, remember that name? Of uh, uh, in, that, anyway, traced his uh, the the family, the, the prominent family, still in that area. But anyway, traced his lineage all the way back to Solomon and Bathsheba. But uh, right, the not Solomon Bathsheba. I mean, uh Sheba. But anyway that uh, the secular record was that uh, Solomon actually fathered a child by her at her request. And that's one of the reasons that she came. She came to see if he was all that she had heard about and was just overly impressed and all. And then she went back and of course that family all through the centuries down to the present time uh, traces its line back to the, to the union between the queen of Sheba and Solomon. And that's their secular verification of that all the way, all the way down through the centuries. But anyway, he's I'm saying his wisdom was absolutely world renowned, and that's just a matter of historical fact. All right, what happens in Proverbs is God on the one hand has given his law, thou shalt and thou shalt not. And he's given his explanations, like in the book of Deuteronomy. But then we have a period of history, and from the giving of the law down to Solomon, you're talking about roughly 600 years, five to 600 years, probably closer to 600 years. So man has had that period of time to live under the law. Solomon is an older man as he writes this. So what you have in Proverbs, you have the result of an older man who's lived his life, and he's very well studied in the law of Moses, and he knows the law of God, and he has a definite personal relationship with God. And he's extremely intelligent. And he's made a lot of observations. He's observed as a matter of fact in life that God's law is right, not just because he says so, but he says so because it's right, it works. And this is the problem. On the one hand, you got the law of Moses. But here is a statement that's more than law. Here is a person who has observed the law either being carried out or disobeyed in the lives of all kinds of people, in his own personal life and family, and has known the history of Israel down through the centuries. And he has come to this tremendous conclusion. In fact, we see in Ecclesiastes, you know, how he winds up. The whole of man is just to fear God and keep his commandments. He has come to this realization that whatever aspect of man you want to look at, his relationship to his wife, a relationship to the children, relationship to the neighbor, relationship on the job, relationship to work, his attitude towards work, whatever you want to look at. If he pursued God's law, he was prosperous. It was just that simple. That It, yeah. it, it didn't take any it's miracle by God or anything like that. That The law just simply was inherently right. It wasn't something where you did it and then God had to cause something right to happen. It was inherently right. Like putting gas in your car rather than water is inherently right. God doesn't have to do anything miraculous that that your engine is designed for the oil itself, and it runs. And so he had discovered that God's law is inherently right. And so based on those observations, i the book of Proverbs. All right, now, what God has done with Solomon, and he does it in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he Solomon actually abandoned God for a period of time in his life and, and uh, was wayward and sinned and tried everything that could be tried. And so God has allowed Solomon to live his life with his tremendous intellect, make all these very keen observations and then has allowed him to put them down knowing that he was going to, through his prophets see that these observations were incorporated and made a part of the canon that would come down through history. Well, we can see the providence of God in the fact that here we're looking at Proverbs Proverbs, let's see, we we're talking about almost 3,000 years between now and Solomon. Not quite, but almost 3,000 years between, about 2,800, I guess, between now and Solomon. Try to think of anything else of this nature. Take a look at Proverbs. Any other wisdom literature that was written 2,800 years ago that is still published all over the world more than it's ever been, and people still read it and stand amazed at the statements which is not there. In, try, in fact, try to think of wisdom literature 2,000 years ago. I'm talking about outside the Bible, really. Or even 500 years ago, or 200 years ago. Well, you, any, try to think of anything, even so much as 200 years ago, published by whatever genius of the day. And of course, when we think of our geniuses in our country, we think of Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin and people of that nature. And yet, who carries around a work by Thomas Jefferson that is studied all over the world or any of those other characters. So here we are, almost 3,000 years later and people still stand back and are amazed at this book. So obviously, uh, the book, the, the very fact we say when even human beings write books, that the uh, merit of the book will be determined by how long it stays around. And that same with songs or anything of that nature. Well here we are, 2,800 years down the pike and it's still here, and people still reading it, and they're still acknowledging the wisdom that's there, and they're still amazed by it. All right, now, did you want to... No, I was just going to say, even some of the people that we consider great writers, when you look at their literature and their philosophy, they're far and a lot. Right, yeah, I think it's the the ones that, a simple thing, that you go read the speeches of Abraham Lincoln, uh, like even the ones they've got behind his statue and all that stuff, uh, D.C., if he was to take out now, the direct sorry. quotes and and then the uh principles he just had a lot of holes up there because he was definitely his whole thinking process was you know, influenced influenced by that but anyway that's what you have in this book you have an older man extremely intelligent very knowledgeable in the law of moses knowledgeable of israelite history very observant of all the lives that he's come in contact with observant of his own life and he sets down with these short statements of truth in other words most of the proverbs a proverb is just simply short statements of truth and most of these proverbs will stand on their own feet. and they're not necessarily all there is some hard and creek law uh, or just hard law that there's no exception the law is the law of moses there are exceptions he observes these as general principles and that as he's saying that as a general rule uh, you do such and such this will be the consequence and you do such and such here and that will be the consequence okay now he starts off by the proverbs of solomon the son of david king of israel and has a lot to say about wisdom and discipline and he begins a key verse there it's verse seven where he says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, or the beginning of wisdom. So his beginning point there, after he compliments, talks off about wisdom, is that it all begins, and this word fear comes from a Hebrew word that I believe personally would be more accurately uh, translated reverence, that uh, it, it doesn't mean to walk around scared out of your boots or anything of that nature, but it means fear in the sense of reverence and awe and respect and knowing that God is true to his word, that what God says is the truth. In that sense, you could say that uh, there ought to be a, we often use a statement there, there should be a healthy fear of the law. do doesn't mean you run around scared to death, but you at least ought to be able to feel that uh, they're, gonna, they're true to the law, that they're going to back it up and stand behind it. So he says the, the reverence, the awe, the respect, the fear of the Lord is literally the beginning of knowledge. It all, it all starts right there. Actually, part of our problem today in our society is that, that with those that have thrown out God, how do you talk about morality without God? The humanist is right. Morality is what anybody wants it to be. How, how does any, if, if you don't start with God, how does anybody say that homosexuality is wrong? or how does anybody say that uh that uh, adultery is wrong or there is such a thing as adultery why, why would anybody have the right to say that that was wrong or polygamy is wrong or or any of that kind of thing that, that we think of as wrong in that nature how would anybody even say it was wrong i don't know i don't even know how you go about proving it you could say it's wrong from the standpoint it doesn't work but you still don't have any force behind it and so he starts off with that it's the beginning everything begins with God and that's the starting point of knowledge itself. Now look at what he says when he gets down here about wisdom, beginning with verse twenty. Now really this passage here, twenty through thirty-three, I think is really good because he he pictures and is an ideal way to introduce his book. And that the importance of listening to information that creates wisdom that allows you to make the right decisions in life. And if you don't listen, if you don't learn, if you don't make the right decisions, then you'll reach that point that, that you know, you just simply will, there's no, no way you can get around it. the consequences that are coming. The Wisdom will actually mock you. And so in this few verses, what you have is wisdom personified. So let's go ahead and start there. And uh, Mark, why don't you read down to uh, about verse uh, 28. And then uh, Nancy, read that 28 through, or read through 27. That need to break. And then Nancy, read that 28 through 33. Wisdom calls aloud in the street. She raises her head in the public squares. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. In the gateways of the city, she makes her speech. How long will you simple ones love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? If you had responded to my rebuke, I would have poured out my heart to you and made my thoughts known to you. But since you rejected me when I called, and no one gave heed when I stretched out my hand, since you ignored all my advice and would not accept my rebuke, I in turn will laugh at your disaster. I will mock when calamity overtakes you, and calamity overtakes you like a storm, and disaster sweeps over you like a whirlwind when distress and trouble overwhelm you. Then you will call to me, that I will not answer. They will look for me, that will not find me. Since they hated knowledge and did not choose to see the Lord, since they would not accept my advice and spurn my rebuke, they will eat the fruit of their ways and repair the fruit of their schemes. but the waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease, without fear of harm. Notice his point here in wisdom personified and the importance of literally uh, acquiring wisdom of a spiritual nature. He literally says that wisdom is crying out to be heard, you know, and she wants to be listened to. And it just seems foolish. And He's got wisdom asking people, you know, how long you love your simple ways and mockers delight in mockery. And then if you had responded to my rebuke, I would have poured out my heart to you and made my thoughts known to you. But you rejected me. Okay? So now the result, as a as, as result of rejecting wisdom that comes from a knowledge of God's word, then he says that, uh, that uh, I in turn, verse 26, will laugh at your disaster. And I will mock when your calamity overtakes you. Notice now, God isn't doing anything mysterious, to cause people to suffer consequences or anything in this life. But rather, the disaster and the calamity comes as a result of them rejecting God. They reject God, they reject the knowledge that God gives, the wisdom, and as a result they make their decisions by some means other than, than God's law. And the result is that after a period of time, disaster comes, and calamity comes. And then it says disaster will sweep over you like a whirlwind. Alright now what happens is that when people began to suffer the consequences of wrong decisions in life, well then they began, they they want the wisdom then, and they, they want the right things to happen. And so he pictures, now they'll call to me, but I will not answer. They'll look for me, they won't find me. Since they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, since they would not accept my advice spurn my rebuke; they will eat of the fruit of their own ways and then in verse 32 the waywardness of the simple will kill them the complacency of fools will destroy them so again when people disobey when they do not follow a the knowledge that comes from God and act in keeping from his word the way they're punished is through the simple natural consequence of that way you reap as you sow, you as you sow. and and he says that God or wisdom is not going to step in in some mysterious way and stop it this will literally eat of the fruit of our own ways and he says wisdom will actually mock them at that time they just simply will not have it and then the waverness of the simple will kill them and we see a whole lot there solomon has observed david made some of the same observations before and keep in mind solomon is a recipient of all the psalms of david and so many times in david's mind it bothered him that Uh, people would be unrighteous and seem to be prospered, and righteous people would be persecuted at various times No, And then David would progress, and he would understand this matter. Well, then Solomon has has made a very strong observation here that uh, when people do wrong, when they reject wisdom, when they reject God, when they refuse to walk by his ways, God didn't just come down and sap them in some way, but God's way is inherently right. And so the end result is that they bring destruction on themselves. And so then they call and it's too late. There's nothing nothing that anybody can do. But then he goes on on a positive sense in, in verse 33, he says, but whoever listens to me will live in safety and will be at ease without fear or harm. Now, this concept is going to be developed all through these proverbs and it's going to be in a sense that in the final analysis in the long run we reap as we sow from a standpoint of certain moral and spiritual implications in our own life. Now another reason I think this is so important what he's saying there and what we'll see in in some of the other chapters I think that there has been preaching that has almost left a misrepresentation of Christianity and that is on the one hand we tell people to repent and God will forgive you. That's why right. I don't care what sin that you've ever committed in your life. God will forgive you, and it can by your trust and the atoning sacrifice and your repentance and all. You know, we we can get it all washed away in the blood of Christ. There's no question about that. But although God forgives when you repent, it is the very consequence of sin that causes you to think in terms of repentance in the first place. In other words, God does not step in in some mystical way and wipe out the consequences. He allows the consequences, and the consequences are the motivating force that cause you to see that God's way is right. And then in repentance, what you're really doing, you changed your mind, you're saying, hey, I'm not going to do it this way, why? Because it don't work, and now I'm going to do it that way. All right, now the impression that's been left, and I think that one of the reasons that we've got so many shoddy and unspiritual lives within the church and all. There is this, it came out of the Protestant Reformation in rebellion against the Catholicism and its emphasis on works and it went to the other extreme and all. And that is this business of let, just let Jesus come into your heart and he's going to work out all your problems. And so people go out here and they make bad marriages or they're promiscuous with their life and then they make various mistakes and everything like that. And then when their calamity comes, just like he pictures here, it's like, well, because of their religious upbringing, I can just pray and ask Jesus to come into my heart, and he's going to get it all right. All right? These people, they're, if, if they, they're doomed to wind up disillusioned. And what happens to them many times, they come to the church, and they pray, and, and the preacher tells them that, you know, Jesus is coming to their heart and everything like that. And they feel real good and everything like that. But they go home and have the same problems. If she made a bad decision in marriage, she's still got that same old body, boy, there with a the beer bottle or whatever he's got. If he made a bad decision, he's still got her there. And if they have both done a very poor job rearing that child, and the child was on drugs or whatever, and they get home, he's still on drugs. He's not off drugs just because they went over and prayed. And now it's true that if they repented, God will forgive them. But what I'm saying is the falsehood is, this thing that Jesus in some mystical way comes into your life and then whammo, everything's gonna get okay. Just turn the nail the preachers will even say, Turn your life over to the Lord. But what we're gonna see as we go through Proverbs, and I believe we're gonna go right from Proverbs into the teaching of Jesus, is that Jesus said the way, and the Proverb writer said, the way you turn your life over to God is by obeying his law. And sin is just simply a disobedience of God's law. Problems come because of sin. Then we get out of problems by stop sinning, at least in a willful, premeditated way, and in, a, in a way that bring, brings those kind of problems and all. And to leave the impression with somebody that you can go out here and I think young people that are brought up in that kind of background, I think probably the worst things on that is even the, the message of once saved, always saved and things of that nature. They actually live their life believing in God. But living according to the lust of their own flesh, even thinking, well, you know, I can always repent, I can always be saved. But there's no question. If you honestly and sincerely repent, the sacrifice of Christ is there. But where it's misleading is to think that God, in some mystical way, will in some way change it so that they do not reap what they sow. All right? A good example just suffering the consequences of our sins. Yeah, I think that's what he talks about in the discipline. And just like Psalms thirty nine eleven says, "He uh, rebuke and discipline men for their sin." Yeah, but it's not in some mystical way or anything like that. Uh, David committed adultery. David tried to cover it up. He lied. A man lost his life. When it was brought, when David, when Nathan rebuked David, David repented and he was sorry and he wept before God but the consequence of that sin was there from then on and God even said that what you did in, in the private I'm going to run open before everybody David had lived a promiscuous type life he had an eye for the ladies there's no question about that And he lived at a time when God was weaking over the ignorances of men in some of those areas, just like Jesus made it clear on marriage, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted this, God never did it. But then you look at David's family, he had one son of one wife who raped a daughter of another wife. And then he had a son of that wife who then murdered the one that raped the girl. And then David experienced all kinds of, of jealousy in his family. His own sons tried to overthrow him in his old age. And there was all kinds of jealousy between the various wives and everything like that. In short, that God forgave David. But David in his old age, reaped the fullness of the consequences of of the mistakes he made. Or in the same way, take the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross looked over at the other one and says, we deserve to be here. He's acknowledging we deserve to be here. And he repented and jesus promised him that he says i say to you that this day you know you shall be with me in paradise but he suffered the consequence in this life he was there on the cross because he had been condemned for a rightful reason and according to his own admission he deserved what he was getting well god did not in some mystical way rip him off the cross or anything like that he suffered the full consequence and he stayed there as an evidence to everybody else that that kind of lifestyle doesn't doesn't pay But on the other hand, he repented, and God forgave him. So I'm saying to to be forgiven after you repent, and God forgive you is one thing, but for God to interfere with the natural law of reaping and sowing is something else. And like Paul said in Galatians, Be not deceived, God is not mocked for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap that he that soweth to the spirit shall from the spirit reap life everlasting he that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh flesh reap destruction so Paul said that that literally if a person can sow one thing in this life and reap something else God would stand mocked that it's impossibility but what he's going to say all through Proverbs is that you reap in this life as you sow as a general rule that's the principle now say as a general rule because when you talk about reaping and sowing you're talking about in the long run. In the short run, it's not always the case. Uh, sometimes, a, uh, an example, you use the, the the gambler who hits it rich on one night, but in the long run, he's not gonna be that way. Or the hardworking farmer that works through a drought. But in, in the general, as a general rule of life, people that work hard, are going to get further ahead than those that just simply go out and gamble and do not work hard. Was it, was it Solomon that said there's pleasure in sin for a season? Yeah, it's in Hebrews 11, 24, 25. Yeah. We're speaking of Moses having left the pleasures of, of Egypt, having left the pleasures of sin for a season. No, he, but he makes a statement. There is pleasure in sin for a short period of time. Mm-hmm. All right, now, obviously, that has to be the case. If there wasn't something to sin, who would engage in it? It's just sort of like uh, taking cocaine. Cocaine obviously offers something and nobody would take it. So there there it is. And so the, the, the whole thing is that when he talks about foolishness as opposed to wisdom, wisdom is making those decisions that turn out to be right in the long run. Obviously, when you make a foolish decision, it must have some benefit to it, or you wouldn't make it in the first place. But it's foolish because you're making a decision on something that gives you some immediate gratification, but comes up short in the long run. Sort of like the person who gets a paycheck and spends it the first day. Well, obviously, he's been gratified. You know, he's got everything he wanted, but then he's hungry from that day on, as opposed to the wisdom of somebody that would say, hey, no, here, But they make sure that they've got a little along the way. Okay, now, come on over to, uh, let's see, uh, uh, chapter uh, 3, starting with verse 5. And again, I've got these marked through here because they they do a good job, I think, of showing the entire tenor of Solomon. Uh, Jack, can you read that? uh, Verses 5 through... We see, 5 through 12. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body, and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord from your wealth, and from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will overflow with new wine. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord, although he is reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father and his son, whom he delights. Okay, look at the principle there. Verse 5. Trust in the Lord, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. Now look at the latter part of verse 6. He will make your path straight. All the question is then, how does God make your path straight? So in all your ways acknowledge Him and then and He will make your path straight. And so if when it comes for example to marriage uh, that in picking a mate you use you use spiritual qualities there as well as others to make a decision there then you're pursuing like for example in the law of moses uh, believers were taught to marry believers Uh, and when you come even into the new testament Uh, the writers uh, paul and all of them all the way through don't we have the right to take along a believing wife like the other apostles and all and so that people that were not already married when they were converted were advised to marry those that were believers all right so as a christian you've got a choice to make you can say that uh, for marriage for me it's going to be limited to somebody who's a believer in god or you can make the choice and say that's not going to be a priority with me well then the point is don't make the choice to not have that be a priority and then 10 years down the pipe be complaining to god about your situation i've got uh uh one lady not too long back that I was talking with her and her husband and she's always, you know, talking about how that their life could be so much different if uh, he had been different, you know, as a husband and everything like that, you know. And they've had a miserable life. They married 24 years and they have next to nothing right now and his body is tore up because of all the drinking and things of that nature that he's done. They've got a lot of scars in their life and all. But, way back when she first got married and she married him, he was not a Christian, anything but a Christian. I mean, he was somebody that was of the world, and he did drink at the time that she married him and everything like that. And so, she had a decision to make there. Uh, I mean, she's an attractive girl with good in- good intelligence, and and that she had a decision to make. And, and that is, do I limit myself and refuse to marry somebody, that, or even to consider marriage with somebody who is not a a believer of God and one that is striving to walk in his life? Or do I go ahead and open that up? Well she had she a decision and so she is there. Well now when, when I talk with her it's you can just tell it's like she's wanting more than I can give. All I can do and I sit down and talk with both of them not too long back. I can tell them the answers are here. And the only way their life is going to change is when they get busy and start putting this to practice in their life. Well, what they want is us to get out and pray and let Jesus come into their heart and and then God's gonna all of a sudden give her a good husband and him a good wife and and he's gonna take care of all the mistakes that they've made in bringing up their children and they're having all kinds of problems with their children. In fact, uh, his oldest son stole a car from him and and, you know, the dad and stole a number of other things. Well, that's not gonna happen. Uh, They can repent, God will forgive them. So that, start. that won't change those kids but if they start putting those laws to practice it'll change their relationship and over a period of time there will be some effect from the kids and others they come in contact with well what he's saying here is in all your ways acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight so when you make a choice for a mate you can follow God's instruction or not when you bring up your child it's like you've got Luke there and any other children you're, you're going to have Uh, Solomon will later on say, to train up a child in the way he should go, and when he gets old, he'll not depart from it. Well, you've got a choice to make, and you can actually look at God's law and say to the child as you bring him up, I don't care what the society does out there, these principles are right, and you're going to be brought up by these principles you know and so that means something different for you you're not going to use this kind of language and you're not going to that kind of activity and then when they get up in high school you're not going to date that kind of person and you're not staying out all night with that with that that crowd or that group or anything like that or whatever may be involved well when you do that you're going to reap certain things if you don't do it you're going to reap certain things also and i think you can take that all the way but his point is god makes your path straight not by mystically stepping in and just taking care of God's method of proving that his way is right is by allowing the natural consequence of and reaping. And that's why, in other words, how if I disobey God in some aspect of my life and there's no consequence there, then what does that say to me? It says to me that God's law is not inherently right. God just says that for some reason. But if I disobey, and there are logical, natural consequences, and, and then I can see lab, a logical, natural resource for doing it, then what that says to me is that God's law is inherently right. It just simply works. All right, then those goes on says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Shun evil. And then he says, look at that. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Now, the interesting thing here is, not only Solomon now Solomon put it down, but all through the centuries there's been certain observations. Solomon really observed, and he makes a number of other statements on that about this thing of psychosomatic illness. in other words that through the centuries people have noted that attitudes affect your body in many ways. Probably the simplest thing to note is a headache. We know that if we worry or, or get overly concerned about something thing we can have a headache we know that you can affect your digestive tract by, by worrying or, or being disturbed or anything like that. We know that when, if you walk around in a state of fear or anxiety that your heart beats a lot faster and you're, you're just not as comfortable or anything like that. So man is noted of all of those things through the year. Well, Solomon put this down, and now scientists tell us as a matter of literal fact that uh, one of the healthiest things that you can do for your physical body is thinking the right way. And uh, I was reading, in fact, I've got the article downstairs, I used it some time back, that uh, you know, the Joyce Brothers, to the best of my knowledge, is, is not a Christian. But just from a, a secular, psychological point of view, she said it's a matter of proven fact that negative things like anxiety and fear and hatred and things of that nature, actually lower your immune system, and so that you're more subject to diseases and things of that nature as a result of it. On the other hand, optimism, love, joy, tranquility, peace of mind, that when you feel that way, your body is as healthy as it's possible for it to be. Now it can only be as healthy as it's possible because a certain amount is tied into heredity itself so far as the physical potential. But your body is as healthy as it's possible for it to be. Your immune system is stronger. You actually have more white blood cells when you are feeling optimistic and, and, and tranquil and peaceful as compared to when you're feeling hatred, bitterness, anger, and things of that nature. Your whole, your whole system operates in a proficient way. Look at verse 2. <coughs> it says, Keep my commandments and I'll prolong your life. Okay. He says that all in ever it's right. right. Keep it right. I missed that one going through. Keep my commandments in your heart. They will prolong your life many years and bring you prosperity, and so you want to live a long time, uh, longer again as a general rule you can say that, he said walk within these principles, you're going to live a longer life and you're going to be more prosperous as a general rule than the one that does not. And here he makes a statement that uh, in, after we looked at verse 6, acknowledge him in all your ways and your paths are going to be straight. And then in 7 and 8 he said he talks about the health of your physical body, and he says that. Uh, uh, that you're going to be a healthier individual as a result of walking in that way. Uh, by the way, it's interesting also in studies they've done, children that come from uh, homes where there's a divorce, a lot of arguing between the husband and wife and things like that. And of course, when you have a divorce, you almost always have had a situation where there's a lot of fighting and fussing going on for a long period of time. You don't just reach this point and divorce because everything's happy. You've had a lot of fussing and fighting. It's been going on for a long time And differences. Children who come from families like that are sick much more often. They miss more school days. They have more problems with headaches and, and all types of other problems. And they don't live as long a life if they don't get out of that, that, that kind of atmosphere. They're more apt to have some serious disease or things of that nature. That There's just no question in the mind of scientists that 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 kind of thing affects the defense of your body in, in, in the way it fights disease and all. Then he comes on and he says honor God with your wealth and you're going to be prospered. the junk will starve to death for honoring God. Again, this principle same principle is taught in the New Testament. Uh, Paul said in Second uh, uh, Corinthians uh, 9 beginning with verse 6 that he that sows sparingly will reap sparingly. God loves a cheerful giver. And then he goes on to say that if you give, that God is able to make all grace abound unto you so that you will always have enough to give and all. And same principle of Jesus saying, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and these things will be provided. And so the whole point is that you don't have to hold back in giving towards the things that God wants you to give to in order to worry about, because you might miss a meal down the pipe or something like that. For example, let's use just them under the old law. God's social security program under the old law was in uh, the way he is welfare program was that every seventh year you were not to plant and harvest your land. It was to lay fallow and it was for all the poor people of the land. Then, on the six years that you did harvest it, plant and harvest it, you were not to reap the corners all the corners were to be left for the poor people, and you were not to glean the field. In other words, you went through and picked, but you just didn't glean and take care of You were to leave some behind. Remember Ruth, when she was in the field of Boaz, she's picking, at, they went through and picked. She's coming along and picking up what they left behind and, and take taking it off. All right, that was God's welfare program. So if you're going to follow God and give the way he said, you not only tithe, but you also, that, uh, talking about a Jew at that time, you did not glean your fields, you did not pick the corner and the seventh year it belonged to the poor. But then God went ahead and promised that if you do this then I'll prosper you enough in the sixth and the eighth year to more than make up for that seventh year. And then also that on the other that he told them that they could have abundant crops. In other words, you can have it, you can disobey God and not get the rain in due season or whatnot or you could obey. And that God could make that land so prosperous that you would have enough for yourself and them and actually have more than if you didn't give to the poor. And you're going to take it all for yourself if you didn't have rain in the right season. Well, God actually operated in the Old Testament in a direct way in that way. That that they got their rain and their seasons and things of this nature when they were walking with God and when they were striving to obey his laws and they had kings on the throne that walked with God. And when they didn't, one of the first ways that God punished them was that they didn't receive their rain in season or or anything of that nature. So the promise here of Proverbs is that there's a natural law of sowing and reaping. And by the way, even that thing of God in control of the elements and things like that and you're reaping and sowing, I think we really deal in the same way with our own own children. You don't, uh, most of us, if you're concerned about your child, you do not have a situation where your parent disobeys you all day and then you say great I'm going to give you such and such and you go ahead and do such and such that uh, we look on that kind of thing as a reward for good behavior and for somebody that is actually trying trying to do right. And God, God is pictured here as being that same in his same way in that, in that approach to us. Alright then after talking about a natural law of reaping and sowing all the way through in every phase of your life, then he comes along and makes a statement, let's see uh, about discipline do not despise the Lord's discipline do not resent his rebuke the Lord disciplines those that he loves as a father the son he delights okay, so we're all being disciplined because none of us are perfect alright, God's method of discipline is very simple, you reap as you sow and so that as you reap the consequences this is god's discipline on you and so he's said don't don't despise that discipline uh, god loves you uh, david for example when he was being disciplined or whatever but for his situation don't despise the discipline god loves you god wants you to see that your way is wrong uh, death itself is a discipline from God. We wouldn't have to die. God has caused us to die because of sin. But death, it's death that causes us, and as our body ages and deteriorates, to constantly, through that discipline, we constantly are forced to think spiritual and to realize that the physical is temporal, in in short. And so the discipline from God, in fact, I wonder what would happen in our seeking after God if we never aged and we never died. But the aging and the dying and the death as a result of sin all around us now becomes a motivating factor to cause people to look for something other than just the physical in this life. And so he tells us that as we go through life and as we suffer the consequences for sin, whether it's our sin or the sins of other people, don't despise the discipline of the Lord, that it's actually for our good. And the end result is that we wind up seeing that God's way is right all all the way through us. Verse 13, let's see, uh, uh, Louise, would you read that? 13 through uh, 18. Blessed is the man who finds wisdom, the man who gains understanding. For she is more profitable than silver, and he has better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you can desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand and the left hand, the riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life for those who embrace her. Those who lay hold of her will be will be blessed. Okay, again, looking at wisdom, by the way, the literal definition of wisdom is the proper use of knowledge. Uh, the fool and the wise men both have knowledge. One rejects it and the other accepts it. The uh, best example of Uh, remember we said we tied this in with Jesus Uh, remember how he concluded the Sermon on the Mount by his wise man who built a house and his foolish man who built a house he says the person who hears these words and does not do them is like the foolish man who built his house on a rock, looks good for a while stands for a short time but then the rains and the wind come and it falls and then he says the wise person is the one who hears these sayings and does them. And he's going to be compared to the person who built the other one, I should say, built his house on the sand. But the one that built his house on the rock and all the rains come and it's stand. In other words, he was, and what's he talking about in the Sermon on the Mount? Same thing the Proverb writers talking about. All through there, he's hit all the moral phases of our life. He's hit marriage and divorce. He's hit the relationship to one another. He's made statements like, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Uh, he's made statements that uh, pertaining to uh, marriage and that there should be one man and one woman until death do you part and things of that nature. And so after all of these moral statements, then he concludes with that. So your foolish man and the wise have each heard the information, but wisdom is the proper use of knowledge. And so the wise person is somebody that's looked at that information and did not reject it. He said, hey, that is inherently right. I can see that works. And therefore, he puts it into practice. He's got something to show for it. The other person says, hey, you know, that I'm going to reject that. I'm not going to do it. Uh, this, there's pleasure in sin for a season, although we may not say for a season. He goes the other way and he suffers a consequence. And so what he pictures here, the same principle all the way through, and in evaluating wisdom, he makes a statement. Look at verse 14 there in that chapter. It's more profitable than silver, more profitable than gold, more profitable than rubies. In fact, in verse 15, he says, nothing you desire can be compared with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She's a tree of life to those who embrace her. And all who laid over should be blessed. So his, his contention is that if you really study God's word, and you derive that knowledge that comes from God, and then you actually use your that knowledge. Now here's the, where the wisdom comes in. You actually go through life using the knowledge that you have got from God and putting it to work in your own personality, in your relationship to other people. And he said the end result is long life better health, prosperity, success with your family, success for others, and you're going to be blessed. And he said, there's absolutely nothing in life, no amount of money, uh, he says, rubies, etc. we might say being a millionaire or whatever, but nothing that you can even conceive of would compare with wisdom. Uh, you know, as I, every time I read that, I think of such people like Marilyn Monroe, uh, who was renowned for her beauty, and who made millions in the movies and committed suicide before she was 40 years of age. And with absolutely a totally unhappy life. I think of the young man a few years back, I can't even think of his name now. Who was that young comedian? There was a millionaire at 22. Freddie Freddie Prince. Freddie Prince. Millionaire at 22. Uh, By everybody's estimation, he seemed to have the world in any way he wanted. Millionaire. A successful TV program, uh, all kinds of people thinking he was great. At 22 years of age he commits suicide in total, total despair. And you could literally multiply that kind of thing so when you look at the lives of people, Elizabeth Taylor, uh, you, her, her face on every publication, all these millions and everything like that. But take a good look at her life. She's gone through eight husbands. I don't care how she pretty that woman smiles or anything, nobody will ever convince me she's a happy person deep down that she has to go to bed at night with despair knowing she's been through eight husbands and right now she's alone unless she's with somebody she's not married to and that's all that's that's all she's got out of life she has nothing to look forward to she doesn't have eternal life to look forward to and and she's got all of that in her in her background well the same with any of, of that nature and so that all the things that we value and yet we can look at the lives of people who have them, and we're not saying you can't be rich and have God, but we're saying that 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 without God leads to absolute nothing, and that true happiness comes as a result of having this kind of information and putting it to practice in your life, and and success comes from that. Look over here to chapter 5, and now he begins. What What we've done so far, we'll just take a few specifics and then call it, He's introduced his book and he's driven home the point of the importance of wisdom and and how important it was to find it. His his beginning point is the the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. Then he begins to just simply look at life in a general way. Where if you do this, you've got all of these things that are going to come about in your life. But he really hasn't zeroed in on any specific commands. He's just talked about God's law in general follow God's law, it'll make your path straight. Follow God's law, put it in practice, you're going to have a healthier body. You're going to be more successful in life. Well now, what happens as he proceeds past that, he begins now to take specific things dealing with God's law and to deal with them. Like for example, in the fourth chapter, he deals with uh, uh, the effect of alcohol. And now, in the fifth chapter, he's going to deal with adultery. And not just from the standpoint of, uh, uh, of the fact that it's wrong, but that it's inherently wrong. And that you can actually look at it and see the things. And so it begins in verse 3. I, for lack of discipline, led astray by his own great folly. All right, now, I don't have it marked in this one. This is a Bible I've just had marked up not too long back. So I can't remember off the top of my head uh, the proverb. uh uh, let me see here I've got 6 Let's turn over to chapter 6 I was looking for uh, alright right, right. This, another one then we're dealing with the same subject here look at chapter 6 and verse 24 Keep you, keeping you from the immoral woman from the smooth tongue of the wayward wife do not lust in your heart after her beauty or let her captivate you with her eyes For the prostitute reduces you to a loaf of bread, and the adulteress preys upon your very life. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. Then look at verse 32. A man who commits adultery lacks judgment. Whoever does so destroys himself. And then look at verse 34. He gives, of the, he gives one of the part. Jealousy arouses a husband's fury, and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. He will not accept any compensation. He will refuse a bribe, however great it is. Okay, now notice his he is By the way, I started to send that in a letter to Philip when he was complaining about John, uh, Don over there with a rifle shooting at him. Uh, what he's saying is He's, he got, the law says thou shalt not commit adultery well what he's doing he has observed life and he's experienced life and he has said the best way to have a relationship with the opposite sex is with your own mate and he said this leads to happiness and contentment and peace and joy and etc you know and he's got a lot more statements in there on it that's the best way He says a man who, uh, one translation says lacks sense. This one says lacks judgment. That a man who commits adultery lacks sense or lacks judgment. And then he talks about that the adulteress, that for a while, for a short period of time, that seems to be so enticing and everything. But in the end, there's bitterness. Well, over here in verse 34, he gives one of the things that began to happen when adultery takes place. That her husband, when he finds out about it, you just may be killed. Alright, we'll see under the law of Moses, the death penalty was for adultery. If a man and woman were caught together that were not married, were each married, they were literally to be stoned to death. That was under the law itself. But the point is, he recognizes as a matter of just inherent, natural thing, that if her husband finds out about it, you've got problems here. Alright, now, look in our own society, because this thing is put forth before our young people in, in so many fanciful ways, and it's like when you uh, you look at any kind of TV program or anything, and you've got everybody running around, and you just, but they do it in such a way that they seem to be having a good time, but when you look at the real world, and you look at the situation, here's a man, I'll just use a man, We could use it the same way, but since he used a man here, he will use one. A man goes out and commits adultery. Okay. Number one. What happens when his wife finds are about it? Well, that relationship is destroyed. It's no accident that Jesus gave adultery as grounds for a divorce. I can see that that's an act that even if she, if he repented and she forgave him, it would be something that would always be in there in that relationship. I don't know how that once adultery is committed by either one, whether it's man or woman, once they, it comes out in the open, I don't know how they could ever have a relationship that would be the same as it was before, because any time they went to have that relationship, that's in the back of their mind. And they've done, I've done enough counseling and, and all, and worked with people that have lived this way to know that they simply, I don't care what impression they leave, if they have been promiscuous with somebody else, they do not have the same kind of relationship that, may, that they had before. I mean, even if they stay together, the relationship will never be exactly the same. The marriage that we're familiar with, over there with uh, the two at uh, the at, uh, church with a wife, the man's not in church. She was married to an unbeliever and committed adultery with uh, a man in the church. All right, She's back with her husband now. But they, this happened now, uh, I guess, a couple of years ago. The marriage is shot. It's been shot. In fact, they divorced, now they're back trying to put together, I think they're still divorced and living together, if I understand it correctly. But when I went to talk to her about coming to church, she went forward and confessed her sin, repented, and everything like that. But she said the relationship can never, and when I talked with him, he said there's just no way that he could feel about her in the way that he did before. There's no way. Well, he's no jewel of a person. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that whatever, they're in a situation now where they're actually trying to put things together and all. And, but even though a couple of years have passed, neither one of them can throw that out of their mind they can't do it. It will be there until they die. Okay? Now, so the person commits adultery, the first thing that's affected when it comes out in the open is his relationship or her relationship with the mate. But then what about the other person that's married? You commit adultery with them. Well, if it's a man, he commits adultery with the wife, like he's missing in verse 34. That man's going to be extremely furious when he finds out about it. Well, when Don found out about his wife having committed adultery, He threatened to kill the guy. And he went after him with a gun. And he would go over to his house. What it was, he would get to drinking. And he'd go over to his house with a gun and stand outside of his house and curse him by the R and threaten him with a gun and everything like that. And the guy that committed adultery was in there literally scared to death. Didn't know what to do because if he called the police, although the police could stop it, he knew himself enough to know. In fact, the truth is, Don could have killed him And got away with it with a light sentence because we recognize a passion killing where somebody in other words if you went in and caught somebody with your mate and in a rage killed that person the courts are going to be very 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 lenient with you that's called a passion killing you might get a few years not on parole and that's and and that's about it and so this guy that committed adultery he had to go for a period of months and months and months every time that guy went out and got something to drink he was over his house with a gun and they and they called the police and they did everything, but they couldn't stop him. And then when he went out on the road, he was always scared that he was gonna be shot. Well eventually he had to get out and he had to move and went into another county, you know. But he literally had to go around for a period and even now, I don't know how that he gets out of the anxiety that he knows that any time this old boy goes out and has him a drink, that he's just liable to be up because that's what comes to his mind, his life. He looks on himself as his life is destroyed with his wife, and that that's the culprit. So when we look at adultery, I don't know how many murders is taking place out there because of adultery. That uh, I know, the police say that the number one cause of murders is not the mafia, but it's domestication. and a domestic fighting and also adultery causes a lot of murders. So the person commits adultery, runs runs a relationship over here with his mate you run the risk of a murder over here now what if there's kids involved Well, then their lives this happened in this one family and the interesting thing is this lady the reason she makes a good example on this overall is a very good person who had come to church had striven to rear her children her husband was not she made the mistake and of course uh, at that time she wasn't a christian he was not he never did you know it it wasn't faithful or anything like that and and so she went for a period of time well then here's another man who's also a believer married a woman who's not in church and so then these two are together and of course he was we found out later running around with all kinds of things but the point is that except for that act of adultery that took place over a period of time you would look at her and say that she was better than the average person you know that she was a good mother and a good person, and, uh, and, and was faithful in the church and everything like that. And like David, she made a big mistake. So I'm saying even that good a person when she made a mistake, her life has been totally ruined for years now. And then her, her children went through all that humiliation. She's got the relationship with her husband that's messed up and all. And she suffered anguish and pain inwardly, spiritually and emotionally and every other way, and I'm sure in her physical body too, since that period of time. Well, you go right out in the world, and I'm saying her name is Legion, that these people that are out there committing adultery or living promiscuous lives, they simply live very scarred, frustrating lives. And even these people that are not married, that are out there having relations, how in the world can they have the same kind of relation when these two are living together or going together, and she knows that the first time that he sees somebody else, that's a little bit newer and a little more attractive to him for that period of time that he's headed there. And he knows that the, ne- the next guy that winks at her, that she thinks is more attractive than him, that that's where she's headed. But well, when they come together, there is no security in that relationship. There's no way that they can completely give themselves 100% to the other. There is suspicion and jealousy and a lack of trust all the way through. And so when they portray on TV, the Bible says there's pleasure in sin, for sees They portray that physical sense of sensation that they get for that short period of time, and that really draws everybody's attention to it. What they don't do, and what he is doing here, is that they don't look, let's look at the life of this lady down the years after she commits adultery, and let's look at the life of him after he commits adultery, and these people that are out there being sexually permissive, let's look at their lives down through the years and see what happens. Well, what Solomon has done, and we just read a few there. There's other verses dealing with it all the way through here. He has sent back, and God's law is, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And Solomon has committed adultery. And his his father David had committed adultery. And he has seen other people, but he's also seen the other side. He he has seen those individuals that honestly love their wives, and their wives love them, and they had a good relationship and all. And based on his own experiences... his observations and his knowledge of the history of the matter, he sits down and makes his statement. And his whole point is that God's law, thou shalt not commit adultery, is not designed to take anything away from you that would be good for you. That law is designed to preserve your family and preserve your happiness and to actually help you to have a fuller and contented life. Well, what he does now with adultery He does it with alcohol. He does it with your relationship with others. He does it with work. He'll even make statements like, "Go consider the ant you slaughtered," and he's going to show and he's going to make a lot of statements about the fact that prosperity is tied up in hard work. Uh, Quite different than our welfare society, that we think that poverty is 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 due to not having enough programs, or it's always somebody, society's fault but the proverb writer thought that poverty had something to do with, with uh, drinking and gluttony and and laziness. And so he would he would observe. Uh, the proverbs here where he observes a lazy person and look at the outcome of his life. And then he ob- observes a real hard-working individual and he looks at the outcome of, of that individual's life. And all through here then, what you have from this point on is just simply the taking of God's laws and dealing in a specific way with it, and I don't know that there's any of not hit. Whether it's lying or stealing or anything of that nature, that every last bit of it is hit. And he deals it with it from the standpoint that God's law is inherently right. And naturally good things happen when you do it, and naturally bad things happen when you don't do it. Another thing on wisdom I thought is good. Look over here to the eighth chapter, seventeenth uh, verse, speaking on wisdom. I love those who love me, and those who seek me find me first. Are those who seek me find me? In other words, that that is no secret as to how you get with Those people that are honestly and well look how that ties in with what Jesus said: seek and ye shall find, knock and it shall be open, ask and you shall receive. You know another thing I think a principle that's taught in Solomon that word that you can see that the way God is a father deals with us, I mean this principle talk the Solomon in Proverbs is that uh, God honestly allows us to reap the consequence of wrong of, of in order to see what is right now and, and so many times we bring children up and don't allow this and then wonder, in other words like the kid that gets arrested for whatever and the parent is out there because they don't want him punished where if they honestly would allow and and push for punishing that first time on something like that it may be the best thing that happened to that person and save him from committing some greater act less later on and same thing in school when somebody does something some parents will fight to the male to keep that child from being disciplined whether it's being sent to alternative school or in school suspension or something like that that's good on drinking look at the 23rd chapter one more I was thinking on that and then, again an inherent right thing the, the thing on, on use of alcohol is the same thing not to don't use it just because God says not to but it's just a naturally stupid thing look at 23 and verse 20 do not join those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat For drunkards and gluttons become poor, and drowsiness closes them in rags. And then in verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Those who linger over wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine. Do not gaze at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons you like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things. Your mind, imagine confusing things. You will be like one sleeping on the high seas, lying on top of the rigging. They hit me, you will say, but I am not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. When I wake up, when will I wake up so I can find another drink?" And so, literally, he mocks it. And so again, the whole principle of avoiding uh, alcohol was that it's stupid you just simply everything you everything it does to you and you do to yourself as a result of it is negative and yet he has seen people experience this and some wise up and the experience of it itself should give wisdom some wise up and some like fools go to get another drink and experience the thing again and speaking of you think i look at verse 23 of chapter 24 i think of our country and it's judging of right and wrong and uh, our system of favoring criminals and the consequences in our society to show partiality in judging is not good whoever says to the guilty who are innocent peoples will curse him nations will denounce him but it will go well with those who convict the guilty and rich blessings will come of them so he says that whoever says to the guilty that they are innocent will suffer consequences but it will go well with people who convict the guilty and rich blessing will come on them. And again, interesting to look at in our own societies that the vast majority of crimes are committed by repeat offenders who go right back out and commit the same crimes over again. And most rapists, most rapes that take place are by people who have already raped that one time and have been turned loose and, and set to do it again. I think Proverbs is a good study with uh, kids too from the standpoint that as you're bringing them up, you're just saying this is right and that's wrong. And I mean, not just read it like that, but to take it and put it on their level and all, and, and point out that God's law is inherently right. You know, just simply, is the only way it works. And I think that's really important to teenagers because you go through, a, everybody I think goes through a little bit of a rebellious type stage when you hit those teen years. And if you've been convinced that God's law is inherently right, then to be rebellious is really to cut your nose to spite your own face. And I think that uh, that's the, sometimes that maybe we bring consequences by the way that God's law has been taught in in just a lot of loud shouts without pointing out that with Proverbs and, of course, the whole history of Israel and, and Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount did, and that is that the law is inherently right and it just simply works. And I believe also when Jesus dealt with the Christians being a light to the world and, and to the and the salt to the earth and all, and the same principle that Proverbs is saying that as you put those principles to practice and reap those benefits, then others by observation can see that that way works, and it becomes something that is appealing to them and works fine also.